This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Now, I'd like for us to begin this talk on God crucified, thinking about the incarnation at the foot of the cross by situating ourselves precisely in how we are now experiencing Holy Week. We are soon coming to the sacred Triduum. And I have two quotations from Greek fathers of the church to help us think about who it is that is on the cross for us. The first quotation is from St. Melito of Sardis, who was a second century Greek father. And I have on my screen here, what is his conclusion to his work called on Pascha. Pascha is this celebration of Easter, but it's also the Passover, which includes basically what we would call the Paschal mystery. So including the suffering, death, and resurrection altogether. St. Melito of Sardis at the end of his Ampasca says, he it is who made the heaven and the earth and formed humanity in the beginning, who was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who took flesh from a virgin, who was hung on a tree, who was buried in earth, who was raised from the dead and ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the power to save all things, through whom the Father acted from the beginning and forever. This is the Alpha and Omega. This is the beginning and the end, the ineffable beginning and the incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the commander. This is the Lord. This is he who rose from the dead. This is he who sits at the right hand of the Father. He bears the Father and is born by him. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. St. Melito of Sardis wants to emphasize that the one who comes to us is God. He is the son of God the Father, and that we then are saved by that one who hung upon the tree for us. Now, along these same lines, in the fourth century, St. Gregory of Nazianzus has an oration on Pascha, oration 45, and St. Gregory says, we needed a God incarnate and put to death that we might live. We were put to death together with him that we might be cleansed. We rose again with him because we were put to death with him. We were glorified with him because we rose again with him. For many are the wonders of that time, God crucified, the sun darkened and again rekindled, for it was fitting that the creatures should suffer with their creator, the veil rent, the blood and water shed from the side, the one is from a man, the other is above man, the rocks rent for the rock's sake, the dead raised a pledge of the final resurrection of all the signs of the sepulchre and after the sepulchre, which none can worthily celebrate. And yet none of these equal to the wonder of my salvation. A few drops of blood recreate the whole world and become to all what rennet is to milk, drawing us together and compressing us into unity. So St. Gregory of Nazianzus continues this way of thinking about how the one who is on the cross is God incarnate. We needed a God incarnate and put to death, okay? And then, and then notice that he uses that phrase, God crucified, okay? And then for us then to consider how wonderful, how, how spectacular this is, how that this is beyond our way of, of thinking, that the one who is on the cross is nothing less than God. And it's precisely in being raised up on the cross, that then God shows us how he loves us and he wants to save us. Okay, so, so I'd like for us to be able to, to 
experience something with those Greek fathers, something of the power of the salvation that is worked for us by God crucified. Now, from that, I want us to look at Blessed Fra Angelico's image of St. Dominic at the foot of the cross. Okay, so Blessed Fra Angelico was a great 15th century artist who was also a Dominican priest. And we see St. Dominic at the foot of the cross. Okay, now in the gospel accounts, we have different readings of who was at the foot of the cross. What I want us to emphasize is that each one of us is called to be at the foot of the cross. St. Dominic, who died 800 years ago this very year in 1221, uh, sorry, uh, so he died 800 years ago uh, uh, in 1221. He can be at the foot of the cross. See how he has his hands wrapped around the cross. See how the blood is, 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 uh, is dripping down from Christ crucified. See how Christ's crucified side has already been pierced. St. Dominic is there at the foot of the cross. And St. Dominic knows that the one who is on the cross is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So I-N-R-I is that plate that, as the Gospels record, show us that this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, for us to consider the wonder of this, because who is the King of the Jews? It's God. The King of the Jews is nothing less than God himself. And think about this. Think about how Christ crucified appears to us who can be at the foot of the cross. And listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. This is Isaiah chapter 52. Uh, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings glad tidings, announcing peace, bearing good news, announcing salvation, and saying to Zion, your God is king. Well, of all the mountains, it's Mount Golgotha, okay, or Calvary. It's this mount that especially tells us that your God is king. So for us then as Christians, to be able to hold on to the cross, as St. Dominic does in this painting, and then to be able to profess faith that this is God crucified. Okay, so, so this is where uh, to be able to appreciate this, okay? Now, in terms of an objection, though, some may just say, well, with the cross, this is, really shows Christ's humanity, that he is bleeding, it, you know, that, that Jesus is fully human, and that uh, we know his humanity, especially in, uh, through his suffering. Well, that's true, but there's also something more to it. It is not only that uh, that Jesus is human, but this is God incarnate and crucified. And so with this, then we can meditate upon the wonder of the incarnation that the eternal son of God took our frail flesh and, uh, and suffered for us. Okay. Because sometimes people wonder, where is God in the midst of my suffering? Where is God when I am suffering? The God who in his divine nature cannot suffer precisely took our human nature in order to show us 
the immeasurable depths of his love for us. God loved us this much. He wanted us to be able to know that he is precisely in the midst of our suffering and that he is saving us from everlasting death so that by his blood, uh, that by his wounds, we are healed. Now for this, I'd like for us to consider it by going back to sacred scripture and looking at it uh, first uh, for three different uh, sacred writers. So the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, and then a couple letters from St. Paul. And then from that, then to go to some of St. Thomas Aquinas's theology. And then in a the conclusion, before we have questions and answers, we'll be able to consider some of the intellectual and spiritual applications to our lives. All right, so let's go back to the Gospel of Mark. This year in the Catholic liturgical cycle is called year B. And so this past Sunday, we heard from the gospel according to St. Mark in the long passion narrative of Palm Sunday. So that each Palm Sunday uh, rotates among the three synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke for the years ABC. And in order for us then to think back upon that Palm Sunday passion narrative, is to go back to the very beginning of Mark's gospel about who it is that Mark's gospel proclaims. So St. St. Mark begins his gospel in this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert. Okay, so what is Mark doing when he's setting up the gospel? Well, he's going back to Isaiah's prophecy, and notice that the messenger here is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist appeared in the desert. He is the messenger going ahead of you, and this means then that the father is speaking to the son. He will prepare your way, and then that voice is saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, you would read, A voice proclaims, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. So the evangelist Mark is portraying Jesus as God. Okay, so early on in Mark's gospel account, you have the healing of the paralytic, and the line is, Who but God alone can forgive sins? when Jesus says uh, that his sins are forgiven. Who but God alone can forgive sins? Well, only God can forgive sins. And that is seen in Jesus's own action. Or to take uh, this miracle account of the walking on water, in Mark chapter six, about the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Uh, They had all seen him and were terrified. But at once he spoke with them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, who can walk on the sea? Well, if you go back to Job chapter 9, that's God. He alone, God alone, stretches out the heavens and walks upon the back of the sea. God is the one who walks on the sea. And when you read Mark's gospel from that understanding of Job chapter 9, 
And then also how it's God who passes by people. What Jesus is doing in walking on the sea is showing forth that he's God. And in fact, when he gives his response to the, um, to the apostles being terrified, he says, take courage, it is I. Well, in the Greek, it is egoami, I am. Egoami is what you find in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, about God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. I am who am. Okay, so egoami haon. I am the being, the one who is in the Septuagint. So in the standard Greek translation of the, uh, of the Hebrew scriptures there. So I am, ego me, I am, do not be afraid. Right, so then when we go to the passion account and think about how in Mark chapter 14, that we have this depiction of Jesus concerning the, the Sanhedrin. Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Then Jesus answered, I am, ego me, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At that, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further need have we of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as deserving to die. Notice that Jesus is um, saying something uh, uh, that is considered to be blasphemy because he is taking upon himself the divine title. And, and so the high priest is in a rage. Uh, you know, this is blasphemy. He tears his garments. You have heard the blasphemy. So then to consider that Jesus is, uh, is the Lord. Okay, he's the Lord, and that then when you look upon him uh, on the cross, that he really is the king of the Jews, okay, the king of the Jews, and then in Mark's gospel account, you have what's called sometimes the messianic secret, because in the very middle of, of Mark's account, uh, Jesus asks, who do people say that the son of man is, but who do you say that I am, and Simon Peter is the one who responds with that faith, all right? Well, uh, Jesus uh, does not want this to be known apart from the cross. And so in Mark's gospel account, and you find this also in the other synoptic accounts, that that confession of faith then is connected with Jesus's mission to suffer, die, and rise. Because you don't understand who Jesus is without the cross. In order for you, in order for us, to be able to make our profession of faith in Christ with that full awareness that we need to experience the cross. We need to be there at the foot of the cross. And then in terms of Mark's gospel account, it is a centurion, a Roman soldier, who then makes the profession of faith once Jesus dies. So in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw how he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So there's something about the cross that was so wondrous, that was so um, significant, that someone who was a Roman, uh, someone who was a centurion, and so was responsible in the killing of Jesus, that then he experiences a grace of conversion and makes this profession of faith. Truly this man was the son of God. 
And then notice then how you have both humanity and divinity there, right? So I wanted us to begin with Mark because there are more objections within biblical scholarship about Mark and the Markan understanding of Jesus. If we move on to the gospel according to St. John, we'll see how John is more clearly presenting the divinity of our Lord Jesus. So at the very beginning of John, okay, you can, and you can compare this with how Mark began his gospel, John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him, nothing came to be. So the one upon the cross is not God the Father. He is the Word. He is still God, but he is different from God the Father. So in this language, uh, the, the Word was with God, and the Word was God but the, um, he was in the beginning with God, okay? So in terms of just being able to see how there's something of the sameness uh, about God, but also a, a difference, okay? And that's where then uh, that helps us consider how the one upon the cross is God incarnate, namely the eternal son of God or eternal word of God. Through him, all things came to be. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, then we hear that the word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John 1, 18, at the end of what we call the prologue to John, uh, that this one uh, who is God has told the father's story or has revealed the father. Okay. Now, in terms of revealing the father, that the cross in revealing the father um, shows us uh, how the son truly is the son of the father. Okay, so consider this, that once you know that Jesus is the son, once you really believe that Jesus is the son, then you know that he's the son of the father, that the son is sent by the father, that the son, that he who has seen me has seen the father, as Jesus says in John's gospel account. So then to be able to, to, um, to have this understanding of Jesus uh, as giving us the image of the Father because he is not the Father, but the Son of the Father, the image of the Father, the Word of the Father. And so he himself is God, uh, and that he can again say that, that phrase, I am. Now in the New American Bible, it's interesting, uh, the times that they will put I am in bold or in all caps, it's the same phrase that we saw in Mark's gospel, ego me. Okay, but now for some reason in English translation, it's in all caps. Okay, but it's the same phrase, I am. So John chapter eight, so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what I told you from the beginning, I have much to say about you in condemnation, but the one who sent me is true. And what I heard from him, I tell the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them of the father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am and that I do nothing on my own, but I say only what the Father taught me. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am. Okay, again, this is about us thinking about the incarnation at the foot of the cross by looking at Jesus crucified. We are able, by a grace from God, to realize who he is. That is precisely in his 
his suffering for our sake, that this is truly the God who is love. Okay, first John says twice, God is love. Well, how can we know God's love? We can especially know God's love for us through suffering. And think about this in terms of your own lives. You know, think about, think about how so often in our lives that love is experienced in a way precisely in connection with something of suffering. That if you love someone, you're willing to suffer for that person. You're, you're willing to lay down your life. Jesus says in John's gospel account, no one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, Jesus continues. Okay, again, first John, God is love. And so Jesus and laying down his life for his friends is showing us uh, the beauty, the wonder, the glory, okay, the glory in, the, in Greek doxa, the glory of God, okay, the glory of God. Now, if you go to uh, John chapter 18, in terms of, uh, of the garden scene, it's portrayed differently from the synoptic accounts that because John wants to emphasize even more something of the glory of God's, of Jesus's identity as God. So John chapter 18, Jesus knowing everything that was going to him, that was going to happen to him, went out and said to them, whom are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Again, for some reason, the New American Bible will put this in all caps, but it's the same, uh, same what words that we read in, in Mark's gospel. Judas, his betrayer, was also with them when he said to them, I am. They turned away and fell to the ground. They turned away and fell to the ground. What has Jesus done? He simply said, I am. And, and think again about Moses at the burning bush from Exodus chapter 3. Go with me. Exodus chapter, chapter 3, verse 14. That Moses is experiencing God in the burning bush. And these soldiers, uh, you know, they're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And it's precisely Jesus the Nazarene who is God, I am. And so the evangelist understands how, you know, based upon that revelation, they turn away and fall to the ground. Now let's look at this with St. Paul's help. Uh, first, in his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the learning of the learned I will set aside. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it was the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who have faith. For Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called Jews and Greeks alike, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Okay, so St. Paul then, uh, you know, he says elsewhere uh, that the only boast that he has is cross. You know, may I never boast of anything except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. He says this at the end of the letter to the Galatians. Okay, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That St. Paul understands then that it is the cross that shows us something of the wisdom of God and the power of God. Okay, so uh, that, and notice then in terms of that power of God and the wisdom of God, that Christ himself is the power of God because he is God. He is the wisdom of God because he is wisdom. Because God is power. God is wisdom. Okay, so uh, you could have fun with uh, the letters and put a capital P on power and capital W on wisdom if you wanted. Um, because it's, it's showing forth who Jesus is. And that this is especially revealed to us on the cross. Okay, so in terms of the, the, the cross is especially helping us come to that faith in, in Jesus who is God crucified. Now, just a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 2, St. Paul says, rather, we speak God's wisdom, mysterious, hidden, which God predetermined before the ages for our glory, and which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so that the one on the cross is God. He's the Lord of glory, the glorious Lord. Now from that then, you can go to the Philippians chapter 2 hymn and how St. Paul gives us this hymn within the context of humility. Okay, so this is where in terms of, of how the chief sin of the human race is pride. The chief sin of the human race is pride. And, uh, and of, all, um, of all things that God could have done, what God wanted to do for us is to show us how much he loves us precisely in the humility of Christ crucified. You know, that the humility is the very opposite of pride. So St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant or taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right now, in terms of just thinking about this, notice how twice St. Paul uses that word form. So in Greek, morphe, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, rather he emptied himself. So that Greek verb there for emptying is kanao, and sometimes people will talk about kanotic Christology, so in terms of an emptying, and that he took, notice then form again, so in Greek morphe, so he was in the form of God, and you could say the nature of God, the substance of God, 
he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. The human being is a slave, a servant. So the doulos, uh, the, uh, the, the human being is a slave or a servant by nature vis-a-vis -vis God. And then, he, um, and then in terms of humbling himself, showing forth obedience to death, even death on a cross. Now, because the son, um, since the son has the same will as the father from all eternity, it's precisely showing forth how the one who is uh, on the cross is both God and man, because in his human nature, he has a human will that then can be obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as, Saint, as our Lord Jesus prays in the agony in the garden uh, that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, with slight variations, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so that Jesus is perfectly human, and that this is the same one who is God, who now is perfectly conformed, uh, conforming our human will by obedience, by charity, to be uh, with the Father. And then how St. Paul uses the language of Isaiah prophecy about how the Lord is speaking about his name, and that it is this name, so the, the Hebrew Hashem, um, that, that the name that is God himself, uh, that Jesus is that, okay? The name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right, so, so there then we have that, that wonderful statement, the confession, it's in a sense the, the very primordial, the, the most basic of all Christian statements. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. So uh, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says elsewhere. Now from this then, I want us to consider um, something of St. Thomas Aquinas. So St. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican priest who lived in the 13th century, and his greatest work is called the Summa of Theology. I've selected uh, from the three parts only one article of one question of the third part, and that is whether Christ's passion is to be attributed to his Godhead. So St. Thomas Aquinas has already done a lot of work showing about the incarnation, but he wants to explore this question because he knows that, uh, that Christ is God, is the passion to be attributed to his Godhead, and what does this mean? So he begins with an objection. The objection is, is, it would seem that Christ's passion is to be attributed to his Godhead, for as written in 1 Corinthians 2, if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. But Christ is the Lord of glory in respect of his Godhead. Therefore, Christ's passion is attributed to him in respect of his Godhead. All right, then what St. Thomas does is he gives other objections, which I've omitted here. And you have the on the contrary. St. Athanasius is a fourth century Greek father who dies in the year 373. And he has a very important letter to Epictetus. So this letter to Epictetus, in this letter to Epictetus, St. Athanasius says, the word is impassable whose nature is divine. Okay, so impassable meaning that um, by uh, God, God cannot suffer. There are all sorts of theologians today who are just fine in terms of talking about God's suffering, but for a classical uh, understanding, God in his own nature cannot suffer, okay? 
So, but what is impassable cannot suffer. Consequently, Christ's passion did not concern his Godhead. Now, what St. Thomas will do is actually will um, we'll make a variation on that. This is very important. I answer that, as stated above, the union of the human nature with the divine was affected in the person, in the hypothesis, in the suppositum, yet observing the distinction of natures. All right, let's pause here for a moment and think about the language. We believe that God is three persons and one nature. And so there are different words to describe God, the Trinity, in terms of three and one. So in terms of nature, you can also say essence or substance. Well, in terms of person, you can also say hypothesis or suppositum. Well, what we say of God concerning the unity and multiplicity, we can, in a sense, have a reverse way of understanding the incarnation. So that, uh, that in the Trinity, there is just one nature or essence, uh, uh, nature, essence, or substance, but there's a multiplicity of persons, hypotheses, supposita, okay? Um, or, you know, you could say um, those, um, that you have the, the three, okay, the three persons. Jesus Christ is only one person, and who's that person? Well, he, that one person is one of the three. One of the Trinity came to us. One of the Trinity was born for our salvation. One of the Trinity, according to the flesh, died on the cross, okay? He died in the flesh or according to the flesh or in his human nature. So Jesus Christ, who is only one person, has or is uh, two natures, two substances, okay? So now let's think about this again. As stated above, the union of the human nature with the divine was effected in the person. So a technical phrase for that from St. Cyril of Alexandria is hypostatic union hypostatic union, so that you have the very union, um, our human nature is precisely in his eternal hypostasis, or is precisely in the person who is the eternal word of God, the eternal son of the father. Uh, and so uh, that one, uh, yet observing the distinction of natures, because in Jesus we have two natures, the eternal uh, divine nature and our weak human nature. So that it is in the same person and hypothesis of the divine and human natures, while each retains that which is proper to it. Okay, so you think then uh, that each nature retains that which is proper. So uh, God's own nature acts in a godly way, and our human nature acts in a human way. And therefore, I say it above, the passion is to be attributed to the suppositum of the divine not nature, not because of the divine nature, which is impassable, but by reason of the human nature. Now, now, so this is uh, in terms of just the distinction here. Suppositum is on the same side as hypothesis or person. So basically they're synonyms. Person, hypothesis, suppositum. Okay, so person, in terms of English, uh, but the Latin is persona and the Greek is prosopon. Hypothesis is a technical Greek term and, the, and a good one possible Latin translation of hypothesis is suppositum, okay? You could also say, by the way, subject, subject. And therefore, as stated above, the passion is be attributed to the subject that, uh, that is of the, of the divine nature, so that eternal son of the divine nature, not because of the divine nature, which is impassable, but by reason of the human nature. 
Hence, in a synodal epistle of St. Cyril of Alexandria, and this is, by the way, his third epistle to Nestorius, he has 12 anathemas, and this is a variation on the 12th anathema concerning Nestorianism. We read, if any man does not confess that the word of God suffered in the flesh and was crucified in the flesh, let him be anathema. Therefore, Christ's passion belongs to the suppositum of the divine nature by reason of the passable nature assumed, but not on account of the impassable divine nature. Okay, so who is the subject? The subject is the eternal son of God. He is that suppositum. And so he, he himself is the divine nature. Um, but it's because he is human, because of the passable or suffering nature assumed, that then we can say that um, he uh, was crucified because, um, because in terms of that there's a human reality, a human reality, uh, but the subject of that human reality is nothing less than God himself. So in terms of St. Thomas here, the reply to the first objection, the Lord, of, the Lord of glory is said to be crucified, not as the Lord of glory, but as a man capable of suffering. Okay, because remember, um, as we saw just earlier from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, that he says, uh, that he says, sorry, uh, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So those who do not have faith do not see that Jesus is the Lord of glory, but he really is, and that uh, that by Christian faith, we can profess it, and that we profess that the Lord of glory has taken upon himself our weak human nature and has died for us, okay? So sometimes people will talk about God is dead. In a certain, in a certain sense, we can even say God is dead, meaning that after his death, God was, um, that in Jesus, every action is an action of God. And so God died for us. Again, remember St. Gregory of Nazianzus, we needed a God incarnate and put to death, okay? That this is God crucified. Now, I want us to be able to think about some ramifications for our intellectual and spiritual lives. I have five little points here uh, that I want to discuss, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers, okay? The first point is simply to think about how um, you know, again, we're in Holy Week. We're preparing for the Paschal Mystery. On Good Friday, we will be able to proclaim God's suffering and death for our life. That, um, that in God's providence for us and his great plan for us and his tender loving kindness for us, that he didn't want simply uh, someone else to be a substitute. That God, uh, uh, God himself, comes to us to show us how much he loves us, that he experiences the suffering and death precisely within our human nature, because God from all eternity cannot, God from all eternity cannot die, but by being born of the Virgin Mary for us, he can, uh, he can die for us, and that this is precisely for our life, okay, for our life, that uh, we're called to have eternal life and that, the, and that um, we know that the one who suffered for us on Good Friday is the same one who rose on Easter Sunday. 
Okay, we have uh, we have a holistic Christian faith. We and and so and you can think back upon Saint Melito of Sardis's quotation at the beginning, and also something of Saint Gregory of Nazianzus is that this is within the entire plan of God. That all of you know in the scriptures, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who made heaven and earth, he's the one who is on the cross. Okay, now in terms of our identity and God crucified, number two. So once we understand that it is God and we accept him as Lord, that we are like, in a sense, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and St. John, the beloved disciple. So in John's gospel account, uh, in chapter 19, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. That is very rich in symbolism. Okay, so Origen, who was this third century Greek father of the church, said that no one can understand John's gospel except the one who leans his head on Jesus's breast and receives Mary as his mother at the foot of the cross. Okay, and then how um, Origen then understands that Mary has only one son. Okay, in the early third century, there were people who thought that Mary ceased being a virgin and had other children. And Origen says, no, no, no. For those who know rightly, Mary had only one son. Well, then Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of God, says to Mary, behold your son. Well, who's that? That's Christ. Our identity in God crucified is to become a child of God. In fact, is to become a member of Christ's body, that we have the spirit of adoption, that then that God looks upon us as he looks upon his only son. So our identity in God crucified is precisely to be Christ. And then you can think about how, in terms of the synoptic gospel accounts, remember I said that at the very middle of Mark's gospel account, you have that revelation of who Jesus is, uh, that Simon Peter, uh, says you are the, you are the Messiah, the, the Son of God. Uh, uh, you are you are the Christ, and you, and you have slight variations in terms of Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, on this. Okay, so uh, so after after Peter says you are the Messiah, then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, and he says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Okay, and then. Peter doesn't understand, and so Simon, uh, so then Peter gets a name, get behind me, Satan, okay, you are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do, and what Jesus then does, what Jesus then says is, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross then is not simply Jesus's cross, in fact, Jesus took our cross, and so we then have a new identity in him. We become Christian, or as St. Augustine emphasizes, we become Christ. We do this in terms of number three, the divine power of the sacraments. So if you go back to John's gospel account, after, okay, so re recall how in Mark's gospel account, after he has died, you have the, the centurion who professes the, the faith, surely this man was the son of God. Do you recall what happens? In terms of John's gospel account, after Jesus dies, 
So he says, it is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over his spirit. Okay, well, think about who's below. If he's handing over his spirit, well, the beloved disciple and the mother are below. In fact, we're below. So he gives us his spirit there. And then now, since it was preparation day, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day of that week was a solemn one, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that it be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other one who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is speaking the truth, so that you may also come to believe. Right? Now, this then um, helps us think about how Jesus is the Lamb of God, but in terms of our belief that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because he is the eternal Son of God. He's the Word of God who is with God and is, frankly, God. And that then, in terms of the divine power of the sacraments, the tradition of the church has seen how the blood and water flowing forth from the side of Christ is precisely showing us the sacraments from Christ's side. Okay, so in terms of that the power of the sacraments comes, it's most especially from the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this divine power, divine power. Now, once we have that divine power, we can be stripped of the idols and living a healed life. Because now we have the one true God. Uh, he is the one true God. And so in terms of, of the idols that we have, in terms of the make-believe, the fantasies, uh, in terms of the things that, uh, that are rivals to God, and in terms of our true worship, in terms of you know, who alone would get our entire heart, that God gives us the grace to be stripped of the idols. Uh, and so that way we, we can have true worship, true worship precisely in terms of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from this, then, the final one is letting others know of the divine power of the cross, that we as Christians don't keep this treasure for ourselves, but that we want to tell every creature under heaven, that we want to tell everybody that the one who is on the cross for us is God crucified. Okay, so, so then in terms of that evangelization of letting others know how God loves us so much, God loves us so much in wanting to suffer and die with us and for us, so that way, we, that way our lives can be changed now and be prepared to enter into the happiness of eternal life with him and to reign with Jesus forever and ever.